Good morning. This is the last week of our long series or mini-series in Luke that we've entitled The Ransom. And uh, if you're like me, the, the death of Christ and one half of the gospel never gets old. And last week in Luke 23, 26 through 43, we walked, we had a chance and did to walk the last 200 yards with Christ from Pilate's palace to the cross. In our time together, if it revealed anything last week, it revealed and exposed that man is incredibly cruel and God is amazingly merciful. Merciful. Jesus, as we saw last week, was declared innocent six times, and yet they decimated his body and face to the point where Isaiah says he was so marred that he did not even look like a human being. Then there was the mocking and the gawking and the scoffing by those who were present. And those who were present we saw made Jesus the butt of their very cruel jokes. It was amusement day last week in Jerusalem, and Jesus was their free entertainment for the day. It was, and still is, the greatest miscarriage of justice in the entire history of the world. But as one writer I read the last two weeks said, at the climax of the amusement show, it all turns into a split second. The abuse of Jesus that was so funny last week comes to an abrupt halt this week as God the Father shows up with power and purpose. Now you may ask the question, what purpose? Well, it's the same purpose that God the Father's always had from the first page of Genesis 1 to the last page of Revelation 21, which is to bring glory to himself. He's the only one that can bring glory to himself, and it'd be good to bring glory to himself through the death of his son. Here's what Revelation 5 does. It gives us a quick but beautiful picture of how this ultimate purpose of bringing glory to himself through his son works itself out into those who believe it's called worship worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing d.a carson one of my professors at trinity evangelical seminary in chicago put it this way in his book, in his 900-page book stop, or doorstop book, called The Gagging of God. He said, despite the best efforts rebels can mount, God will not be gagged. God will not be silenced. God will not be marginalized. God will not be dismissed. Because God is for God. And he will ensure that his glory is displayed and all the earth. God's ability to glorify himself. Listen carefully to me. Through every circumstance in history, and therefore in your life and my life, is due in large part, 
because of the theological word we use of providence. The providence of God means that this is our Father's world and the affairs of men and nations in the final analysis are ultimately in His hands. Not yours, not mine. Not in our leaders of our country. Yes, men and women, we are responsible for our choices, our beliefs, our responses, but human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's providence because somehow, some way, as only He can do because He is God, He works it all together for our good. Let me personalize it for your good, for my good, and for His glory. That's what Romans 8, 28 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 follows that up, which we rarely quote. We love Romans 8, 28, but verse 29 says, so that you may be conformed to the image of his beloved son. He will not waste anything in your life to accomplish his purpose, that he may be glorified for your good. This morning we get to see, this is so exciting as I got into this text. I don't think I've ever seen it quite with this set of lens, these lenses looking at it. We get to see this morning the long and powerful arm of God the Father's providence in the death and burial of his precious and blessed son. God the Father thus far has seemed, as many in the world might portray him, he seemed up until now above and beyond the fray, sort of a detached old man with spectacles on, smoking on a pipe. A spectator, if you would, in heaven, hoping things go right hoping things go well, but really with no ability or power to control anything. That's what it seemed. That's how the world sees God. And yet our text shows us this morning that that is the Father's thing from the truth. If you have your Bibles, open to Luke 23. If you have your outlines, grab a pen and take notes. Here we go. Starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, 
who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ornaments. And the next day on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. In your notes, it says, God the Father and the, God the, Father and the death of Jesus. Verses 44 through 49. Here's what we see first. We see God arrive in verses 44 and 45a. He arrives here in the form of darkness. Alistair Begg, one of the great Bible teachers of our times, puts it this way. It was a total blackout. Verse 44, context. Remember, Jesus is still hanging on the cross. He's just promised one of the criminals that on this very day, you will too be with me in heaven or paradise. And then Luke lets us know what time it is. He says it's the sixth hour. In our time, what, what time is that? It's noon. It's 12 noon in the desert. So we remember Jesus was initially hung on the cross around 9 a.m., He's been hanging on the cross for three hours, and now it is noon. We are in the Mideast, folks. We're the brightest sun in the world shines at times. This is high noon. In the first three hours from 9 o'clock to noon, the vast majority of the talking that's been going on has been from those who hate Jesus and had verbally abused him. But now at high noon, God the Father speaks. And he speaks in darkness. The text tells us as darkness falls over the whole land from 12 noon to 3 o'clock. Dr. Daryl Bach, a great expert on the book of Luke, says this. As the crucifixion proceeds, the heavens begin to speak and they speak in darkness. Imagine, just put yourself in that situation. The fear, the confusion, when in an instant it goes from high noon, as bright as can be, to so dark you cannot even see in front of your own face. No stars, no moon. That's what it means when it said the sun failed. Only pitch black darkness. Now, I think a normal question would be, how would the Jews see this? How would they interpret that to go from high noon to pitch black darkness? Well, they knew, remember, who Jesus claimed to be, God in the flesh. They knew that the Old Testament used the phrase, the day of the Lord, to describe when God comes in judgment. They knew how Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 talks about, describes the day of the Lord. Verse 2, it puts it this way. The day of the Lord is the day of darkness and gloom like blackness. In verse 10 of Joel 2, it says the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. 
They knew about Amos 8 where it says the day of the Lord. And it describes it this way in verse 9 of Amos 8. And on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. There is no doubt that if you're a Jew and you know your Old Testament, which they did, that the supernatural darkness meant divine judgment and the presence of God himself. Here's what's pretty amazing. When the sun stopped shining, guess what else stopped? The gawking, the scoffing, and the mocking like that. The joke's on them. Let me remind us that in the future and now, when you're in 24-7 darkness, you're in hell. The present darkness says God has arrived in darkness to unleash his judgment on Israel for the rejection and murder of his son. So today, that day, in these three hours, God brought hell to Israel. And we'll see later how he did that. But for now, there is panic and silence in the streets of Jerusalem. But God doesn't only arrive in his providence. He also welcomes verse 45b. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, much like our tent outside. <laughs> God is provident. Maybe he did that just to give you a picture of it. Alistair Begg again called this God vandalizing the temple himself. So here's the scene, folks. It's 12 noon. The lights go out. And then three hours later, it's pitch black dark. And three hours later, boom, lights come back on. Instant sunshine, Matthew 27 says. And immediately the curtain that prevented anyone but the high priest from entering the Holy of Holies into the presence of the living God is torn from top to bottom, Mark 15 tells us. Now I want you to do this. Pretend like you're riding on a drone and we're at the cross. I want you to come over not far to Jerusalem to the temple. Come with me here and imagine the scene. The priests have been paralyzed for the last three hours in this darkness as they were getting ready and getting prepared to slaughter thousands of animals. Hundreds, several hundred thousand people are mingling around the temple, afraid to even move because they can't see. And then all of a sudden, the sunlight reappears. And as they start to get back to preparing the animal sacrifices, they hear a loud ripping noise in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. The noise coming from this room where the Ark of the Covenant was held. An ark of the covenant held the Ten Commandments. In that room, in that room where only the high priests were allowed to go and only one time a year to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, it was that curtain that tore. God is declared, and we better be glad he is. 
through the ripping of this curtain, that the world is now welcome to his very presence. That they have access to him through the death of his son. Jews only, which the curtain specified, over with. Need a priest to intercede for you? No more. The physical temple is where God lives. Absolutely not. He will now live literally in the hearts and lives of those who place their trust in his son. It is the end for the need for animal sacrifice because the perfect lamb of God has been slain once and for all for sins past, present, and future. You do know that when a, you come to Christ or a person comes to Christ, that it isn't their sins in the past that are forgiven only. It isn't their sins of that day that is forgiven only. It is the sins of your past, present, and what? Future. And God chooses to remember them no more. Done. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 Here's what he does. He, he, he's making a case here. He lays out how this old, this curtain and this tabernacle and this holy of holy works and all the things that the priests need to do in order to go in it. He lays that out. But then a few verses later in verses 12 through 14, I want you to listen to how dramatically it all changes because of Christ's death and this curtain being no more. It reads in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? That's a great line. How much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will he purify our conscience from the dead, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the, not one of, the mediator of a new covenant. And then I love one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Top 10 at least, Hebrews 4.16. In light of that, let us then run with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in this time of need. The reason you and I pray if we know Christ and God hears us is because there's nothing blocking our access to him anymore. Add to the torn curtain, Matthew tells us, there was an earthquake. Boulder split in two. He tells us tombs were open. Check this out. And saints from the Old Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead, rose from the dead themselves and went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. I want you to think about, you got a loved one who's, who died. And all of a sudden, they show up. What up? 
Now, you, you put yourself in Jerusalem. You're talking about scary and wild and chaotic beyond description. And yet what we see on that middle cross is a steadfast calm. Look at verse 46. God punishes. God the Father shows up in wrath. Not wrath for the Romans, not wrath for the Jewish leaders, not wrath for the Jewish people, but he shows up in wrath on his son. Remember earlier I said that God the Father brought hell to Jerusalem? Well, here it is. Matthew 27 tells us Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the first time in not the history of the world. It is the first time in all of eternity that God the Father and God the Son are separated from each other. That pain was so much more. Matter of fact, the physical pain that Jesus endured was minuscule in comparison to the severing of the intimacy that God the Father and God the Son had. That's happening here. We know that hell, folks, hell is where folks are separated from the presence of God. Hell is where God punishes people for their sins, and here God punishes his son for their sins, for our sins. Jesus absorbed eternal hell for all those who would believe in this moment. It is here that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, be, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. The reality is this. Hell is full of people who tried and failed to pay for their own sin. That's it. They had so much pride. And so little need and so little awareness. I'm good enough. I can pay for my own sin. Heaven is full of people who were just as sinful but who knew it and were aware and therefore trusted in Christ to pay for their sin. And notice how Jesus dies. He quotes Psalm 31.5. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was stunning in a new way this week as I studied. Even as Jesus stares in the face of death, he verbally expresses that God will both care for him and will vindicate him. Even as Jesus, in his worst moment, experiencing separation from God the Father for the first time in all eternity in dying horrendous death, he still says to the Father, you are providential. You are in control. I entrust my life to you because I know you love me, you'll care for me, and you will vindicate me. That's exactly what God is asking every believer to do, no matter what circumstances come to your life or mine. On another note, this is death for a Christian. 
What is death for a Christian? It's what we fear most. We will, because of Christ, never experience. We will die and then wake up in the arms of Christ. It's a beautiful picture here for us in many ways. So God arrives, God welcomes, God punishes, and then God saves. Verse 47, the great pastor and theologian A.W. Pink tells us, it is the shepherd that seeks the sheep, not the sheep that seek the shepherd. And here we see that. We've seen God already last week save one of the criminals on the cross. Now we see God here saving a Roman soldier, a centurion, a man who was approximately over, had authority over a hundred other Roman soldiers. And for this Roman soldier, we need to understand, look, this was a normal day at work for him. I mean, he would, he would go home to work and his wife would say, how's your day? He would say, well, I called a guy, he was, uh, he was trying to evade taxes and uh, we had a couple crucifixions. She wouldn't think anything of it. She would immediately say, well, that's great. Glad it went okay. Did you remember to pick up the locust and uh, olive oil for me? You know, they did eat locusts back in the day. We eat grasshoppers, don't we? No. It was no big deal. So here we have a Greek Roman soldier with no Old Testament background, seeing Jesus more clearly than the religious leaders who were scholars of the Old Testament. This soldier has seen hundreds of crucifixions. But this one's different. Because he says this man is innocent. And in the text, he praises God. This verbal verdict affirms Jesus as just and the execution of Jesus as unjust. Mark, in his parallel passage, gives us this salvific confession from this soldier. He says, truly, which I, I really mean it. I'm not playing around here. What I'm saying is true. This man is the son of God. This soldier has seen the darkness that everybody saw. He's felt the earthquake. He's probably heard about the ripping of the curtain from top to bottom. And at that moment, the shepherd not only seeks, but finds the sheep. And God lifts the blinders to let him really see who Jesus is. In my crazy mind, my thought is, I wonder how the conversation went that day with his wife when he got home. How was your day, honey? So God arrives, God welcomes, God punishes, God saves, and then verse 48, God convicts. Several times in our Ransom series, we've talked about the fickle crowds that screamed, crucify him, crucify him. Earlier that very morning, this is Friday afternoon, they had seen all what had taken place. They had seen the darkness, the earthquake, the craziness, the rocks splitting. 
And the text tells us that God moved on them with great conviction. So much so that they shut their wicked mouths and went home. Text tells us they beat their breasts. They went home beating their breasts. To beat one's breasts is an external expression to show sadness and guilt and conviction that you're feeling. Luke's used this phrase before in Luke 18 when he says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. These crowds have demanded that Jesus be crucified. They have demanded that he be traded out for the criminal Barabbas. They verbally abused Jesus. They gawked and made fun of Jesus as if he were a joke. And now God has moved on them to bring great fear and anguish and overwhelm them, knowing Letting them know God the Father is not pleased. One commentator put it this way. They went back home and kneeled down and prostrated themselves to the ground in the utmost astonishment, confusion, fear, and dread. God shut their mouths because he came in conviction. Lastly, on our first part, quickly, God conceals Verse 49 says there are some women and acquaintances and friends on the scene. Now they'll show up later. The women will. But for now, they're just observing. And, and I think they're just wondering what in the world is going on. And at this point, God conceals what's going on. But they're wondering. And we'll see them show up later. So we have God the Father and the death of Jesus. And now we have in verse 50 through 56, God the Father and the burial of Jesus. And in that, we see that God encourages verse 50 and 53. You know, we would think in a burial there's not much to say. You dig a hole. You put a person in it. You cover it up. This is a miracle burial. There's enough fulfilled prophecy in the burial of Jesus to convince a person that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. Now, as we unpack this, I want you to remind, I want to remind us how God takes the choices of men and women and weaves them into his divine purposes. Okay? That's providence. Would you stay with me here? Check this out. Let me give you some context. To do that, i got to go back. Just stay with me. Watch me right here. Write it down. Look at it yourself. We've got to go back to John 19. Because there John tells us that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and asked if the legs of Jesus and the two criminals could be, could be broken. Why would he do that? Why would they do that? Well, the Sabbath is going to start at Friday at 6 p.m. It's probably 3, 4. I mean, it's getting close to the Sabbath, and they can't have a dead body. So they need the death of those, those three men, including Christ, two criminals and Jesus, the death to be sped up. 
and hitting the legs or breaking them with a huge mallet, iron hammer, would, would, uh, doing so would not allow them to press with their legs to get a breath. It would make them uh, not be able to breathe and therefore die faster. So they go to Pilate. He said, yes, John 19 tells us, so the soldiers broke the legs of the two criminals. But the text tells us in John 19, when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. And I thought about this, it's pretty ironic that they were so concerned with not defiling the Sabbath, but they had no problem murdering the Son of God. It, it is another picture that Scripture gives of them and us where folks... We really are blind to our own sinfulness. That's why we need to do the Christian life in community, not alone. Because I can see your sin better than I can see mine. And you can see mine better than I can see mine. It's uncomfortable to do life that way. But it is far best if you want to walk with Christ. They don't see that, though. Even now, though, in their own blindness, they are serving the purposes of God. Psalm 3420, it's a prophecy. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. John 1934 says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, and out came blood and water, which was proof that he was dead. Fulfilling Psalm 3420 that is quoted in John 1936 says not one of his bones will be broken in Exodus 12:46, where it says that the Passover lamb should not have any of his bones broken. And then in verse 37, Zechariah 12 is quoted. Here it is. They will look on him whom they have pierced. <laughs> look, they think they're just going about their day. They're just, they're just doing to make it more efficient, to get this dead body off, break the legs. You know, why would a soldier take a, if he's dead and they know he's dead, take a spear and stick it in Jesus' side? Maybe he's mean. Maybe he wants vengeance. What he, no matter what he thought of why he was doing it, what he didn't realize is he was fulfilling the very purposes of God's providence. Because the scriptures predicted that. Now quickly back to verse 50 through 53. It says, our text tells us, that's context. We have a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And check this out. <laughs> this guy is a member of the council. What does that mean? He is a member of the elite 70 Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Our text tells us he's a good man and a righteous man who had not consented to the decision. What decision? The decision to crucify Jesus. Most scholars say that he didn't show up for that because he didn't want to be a part of it. So one out of the 70 have come to saving faith in Christ. This is shocking a godly rebel amongst the Sanhedrin who hated Jesus. John tells us the reason he did not show up. Verses John 19, 38. 
says because he was fearful of the Jews. I sound like you. Sound like me at times. We don't stand up for Jesus because we're fearful. There's hope here. There's encouragement here. You know why? Because that's the way most of us start the Christian life. And at some point, something happens that changes that. And at some point, God works in his providential care in our lives in such a way that we say, I'm done. I'm done not standing up for Christ, no matter what the cost. And that's what happens here. John also calls him a disciple of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea, a Sanhedrin, has kept things down on the He's kept things on the down low, if you would. Because at this point, he lacks the courage to publicly stand for Christ. But God used, which is what God does, he used all that Joseph saw that day. He used the blackout. He used the earthquake. He used the, the cracking and the splitting of boulders. He used the tearing of the temple. He used the mocking and the scoffing and the gawking, and he looked at Jesus and he said, the cross, what they did to Christ on the cross, I'm done being silent. The cross got to him. The cross is what will get to you and I to say, no mas. We see the cross as Joseph and Matthias sees the cross, and guess what? We say, I stand. I'll be bold for Christ. I will not go silent anymore. And here's what God does. He uses all of that to pour this huge bucket of courage on him that prompts him to go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus in order to give him a proper burial. There's no way Jesus' body, he says, is going to be thrown in a pit, eaten by wild animals and picked at by vultures. It gets better. John 19 says that Joseph of Arimathea was not alone, that he had help. And I'm thinking, when I'm reading, I'm going, who in the world would come and help Joseph when Joseph hadn't told anybody that he actually was a disciple of Jesus? And guess what John 19 tells us? Who is it? Nicodemus. Oh, Nick at night. We haven't heard from Nick in 17 chapters. Nicodemus was a Pharisee and also a member of the Sanhedrin. He had gone to Jesus in John chapter 3. Go read that. He had questions about eternal life. Jesus told him eternal life was found in him. Nicodemus, you follow me. In the middle of the night, they had that in secret. And Nicodemus said, no. Sometime between that conversation and John 3 and this conversation or this event in Luke 23, Nicodemus has come to faith in Christ. So now we got birds of a feather flocking together. Two partners in righteousness. Two godly rebels inside the Jewish camp. 
And the text tells us both of them wrapped Jesus in a linen and laid it in the unused, unused tomb of the rich man named Joseph of Arimathea to fulfill. Think about this, Isaiah 53. He will be buried with a rich man in his death. Do you see God is not detached? <laughs> He's provident. He's there. And then lastly, God prepares. Verses 44 through 56. These women who at this moment see where Joseph and Nick are laying the body of Jesus, they see God's preparing them because they see Nick and Joseph putting these spices on. And as women would do, or going, the men didn't do a great job. They're a little messy. We are going to go home. We're going to get these spices ready. And we're going to come back on Sunday after the Sabbath. And we're going to properly bury Jesus' body. Here's the deal. Without them seeing that, they wouldn't have known where he had been laid. And they were the first to see that he was there no more when they returned, and that's to be continued. I don't know about you, but I love this text because life is so hard and so full of anxiety and circumstances that can make my stomach flip with nausea. That sound familiar for you? And yet this text tells me God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always at work in my life and yours to use every circumstance to confirm for me into the image of his beloved son. Everyone, if he, if he did that in his son's life, at his son's very worst moment, he will certainly do it in ours. That's one takeaway this morning. The second one is, we've got some music playing as we look at our so what. And that is, we want to spend just a few minutes we have, seven or eight minutes in prayer. And as we look at the cross, what we automatically go to, first word you think of is what? Forgiveness. We get forgiveness on the cross, and that's rightly so, and I don't want to diminish that whatsoever, but, but look, what happened on the cross is so much bigger, so many more things than just forgiveness, and we need to see all those things. There's a great booklet I want to encourage you to download. It's free. It's a PDF. It's by John Piper. It's called 50 Reasons Why Christ Died. Whether you're here or at home, I want you to read. I'm going to read through these, and I want you to follow. And as I follow, I want you to write one down or grab one with your mind and hold on to it. And then we're going to have a prayer time. And part of, and really this prayer time today is going to be you praising God for one of these many things that he did by his death. Piper says, Christ died to absorb the wrath of God, to please his heavenly Father, can we, can we 
Thank you. To learn obedience and be perfected. To achieve his own resurrection from the dead. To show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners. To complete the obedience that becomes our righteousness. To take away our condemnation. To abolish circumcision and all rituals as the basis of salvation. To make us holy, blameless, and perfect. To give eternal life to all who believe on him. To deliver us from the present evil age. To reconcile us to God so that we might belong to him. To give us confident access to the holiest place. To free us from the slavery of sin. To enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves. To make his cross the ground of all our boasting. To give marriage its deepest meaning. To create a people passionate for good works. To free us from the bondage of fear and death. And to destroy the hostility between races. And to show that the worst evil is meant by God for good. Take a minute to consider that. And as you do, pull your phones out. Art, join me up here. Pull your phone out. There's a number up top there, 615-205-4367. And begin texting us what you want to take away from Christ's death, that you want to remember why Christ died, or maybe even something uh, something that, that is not true of you now, but you want to be true of you in terms of that. Obviously, if there are other prayer requests that are uh, heavy on your soul, you can text those as well. So start texting, we'll pray, and you pray along with us. <laughs> 